Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome. Um, We're so happy to be here at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm thrilled to be here with my friend Ryan Hampton um, to do, I think, what is the introductory launch uh, event of his wonderful new book, Unsettled, How the Purdue Pharma Bankruptcy Failed the Victims of the American Overdose Crisis. Um, So Ryan and I have been sort of circling around each other in the opioid space uh, since since my book, uh, Dopes It, came out in 2018. I've been following his work. We talk a lot. um, And he's been uh, just a wonderful friend and a resource to me. Um, So uh, how this is going to go today is I'll be asking Ryan questions. Hopefully we can have a bit of a dialogue. Um, In about 40 minutes, we will have time to answer your questions. And so if you want to just feel free at any point you have a question to just pop it up into the, the text chat. That'd be great. So in September 2019, Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, a company controlled by the infamous billionaire Sackler family, filed for bankruptcy to protect itself from 2,600 lawsuits for its role in fueling the U.S. overdose crisis. Author and activist Ryan Hampton served as co-chair of the official creditors committee that acted as a watchdog during the process, one of only four victims appointed among representatives of big insurance companies, hospitals, and pharmacies. He entered the case believing that exposing the Sacklers and mobilizing against Purdue would be enough to right the scales of justice. But he soon learned that behind closed doors, justice had plenty of internal competition, and it came with a hefty price tag. Unsettled is, it's a riveting story, first of all. It's its very accessible. It takes a lot of the headlines that, that you'll read about the bankruptcy in newspapers, which I find to be kind of... Um, opaque and hard to understand. And it really breaks it down into to common sense language that, ha- but also Ryan is so good at weaving in his personal story as well. Um, the, in a way that I think is brilliant. It is the inside story of Purdue's excruciating chapter 11 bankruptcy, uh, the company's eventual restructuring and the Sackler family's exit from any true accountability. It's also the untold story of, of, how a group of determined, ordinary people tried to see justice done against the odds and in the face of brutal opposition from powerful institutions and even our government. So I'm just going to begin, Ryan, with asking how you came to serve on this powerful committee. Um, It's got kind of a wonky title, the Unsecured Creditors Committee. But um, so basically what qualified you to get the spot on, I think it was nine members um, competing with over 70 lobbyists, corporate creditors and other big money special interests that thought they were deserving a seat at the table uh, in order to divvy up the spoils of Purdue? Sure. Well, thanks, Beth. I'm, I, I'm thrilled to be able to do this launch event with you. Um, big fan of your work also. And congratulations on Dope Sick, you know, coming out next week. Really excited to, to be watching that. I think it's great timing um, given where we're at with the case. You know, I um, what qualified me to, to serve on the committee first and foremost is I, you know, I, I wrote the book and I'm an activist and advocate in, in, in the space. And uh, but I'm also in recovery. Right. So I, I was a victim of Purdue's product. Um, it started for me uh, in 2003. Um, after an injury, I got caught up in the Florida pill mills, um, was prescribed Oxycontin, uh, was also prescribed other uh, Purdue uh, products for, for pain relief. I write about them, uh, Dilaudid uh, being the main one that it started with. I write about it in the book. Um, and that led to, you know, overdose, destruction at home, um, unemployment, uh, homelessness, um, all, you know, eventually heroin, you know, IV heroin use. And got sober uh, in 2015. And after that, started just losing a lot of friends of mine and eventually found my way uh, into advocacy, into activism. And one of my main targets um, had has been for a long time, Purdue Pharma. Um, back in 2018, um, Cheryl Jouer, who I, I write about a lot in Unsettled and, and is a dear friend of mine who still serves on the Unsecured Creditors Committee, 
um, we held the largest protest, I guess you could say, in front of Purdue Pharma and delivered a letter to Craig Landau demanding immediate reparations for people uh, who were harmed in money for communities um, that had been devastated by, by Purdue's crimes, uh, over 500 people that, that showed up. And when Purdue, and I had written about Purdue, I wrote about them in my first book, An American Fix, and wrote a lot of uh, op-eds, and when Raymond Sackler died, was pretty loud about it. Um, when they decided to file for bankruptcy, as I kind of had learned to do, I wanted to learn more about the process. And I had already been talking to other lawyers and attorneys about a possible kind of large civil action against the company and the family, and um, discussed literally stumbled on this thing called the Unsecured Creditors Committee, had no idea what it was, had no idea how bankruptcy worked. All I, all I heard was what many people in the media heard, which was Purdue was going to be going out of business. They were going to be facing you know, this litigation and the bankruptcy. All these state attorneys general were going to be participating in it. And there was this kind of unknown committee uh, that would serve as a sort of mega plaintiff in the bankruptcy because really there is no plaintiff. It's not really the same thing as a trial. Um, you could imagine Purdue as like the defendant of a sense, and then the UCC as a as a as a plaintiff. They had have broad powers, uh, subpoena powers, depositions, discovery, consultants, lawyers to really get to the bottom of how much money did this company have. What did they do that caused so much harm, right? And well, there goes the the Zoom stuff. Uh, what did they do uh, that caused so much harm? Um, and and what would the ultimate settlement be? Um, and I applied and ended up, you know, being invited to New York City to meet with the Department of Justice and the United States trustee um, to interview for this position. Uh, nine people were seated. They ended up seating four victims, uh, Cheryl being one of them and myself being one of them. And I thought at that moment, oh my gosh, we have a seat at the table, right? We're going to, we're like this big band of, you know, people who hate Purdue, you know, can't stand the Sacklers. We're going to hold them accountable and we're going to do this together. Um, I had no idea what I was in for. I, I had not a clue. I really believed to my core that we were going to be able to do some good uh, and deliver some shred of justice for communities. Um, but what I learned in the process, it was nothing short of maddening. And if you didn't live it, which is one of the reasons I wrote about it, uh, and if I wasn't there and saw it with my own eyes, it's almost unbelievable. Almost unbelievable. What was a typical day like? Because I remember being really shocked at how all-consuming it was the first time we yeah. spoke. Yeah, um, it it... It was all day um, for, you know, the first several months of the case. And I mean, it, you know, really depended the corporate creditors. So you've got to know the makeup of the committee. Right. So it was the four victims and then it was five corporate creditors, which included, by the way, CVS, who's facing litigation right now in the multi-district litigation for their role in the overdose. As if they are victims, to be clear. Right. Well, and that's the interesting part of the makeup of the other five. Blue Cross Blue Shield right? Was representing insurance companies. Uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield denied me insurance more times than once when I needed help for my opioid use disorder, right? And they had a multi, you know, several, actually their claim was several hundred billion dollars uh, against the company that they had been harmed. Hospitals had claims in represented by West Boca Medical Center. Now I'm from Florida, you know, funny story, I actually had been kicked off the steps of West Boca Medical Center um, and not given treatment or help or what I needed. So it, you had these big corporate giants that were sitting there and then you had these four victims. The big corporate giants, you know, they had paid lawyers that it almost felt like they, they, were, they did this for a living, right? Like they knew the bankruptcy process um, and they participated in calls, but the victims, right? The four of us, I mean, we were everywhere, right? We were on every call, asked every question, wow. every deposition, went through every, you know, file, piece of material we get our hands on. A lot of the first, you know, several months was just getting an education, right? Because I can remember in the first six weeks of the case, we jumped on the, we would have daily phone calls that would last forever. And they'd be using all this legal terminology. And I eventually just stopped them. I was like, you know, we don't, 
do this for a living, you're going to have to slow down and really explain to us what's happening here, because it seems like it's pretty important and it's going to impact us. Um, so I would say that the, for the victims, it was more work than it was for the lawyers. Um, oh, I'm sure. And, and then you already had a policy background. I mean, you know more about the opioid crisis than about all different aspects of it than just about anyone I know. Which was, and yet, it, that was one of the challenges for them because they were viewing this through the lens of bankruptcy law, which again is not criminal law. It's, it's a very specialized version of like, you'd put it on the civil side, but even civil lawyers aren't really good in bankruptcy. Um, and then you mix it with like public health and it's like a disaster, right? Because the goal of the bankruptcy is to, you know, preserve as much money as possible to pay off these creditors, not necessarily to institute sound public health and actually help the people who were harmed the most. Like by the time we went into bankruptcy, people see there's this big misconception um, is that the Sacklers and Purdue, you know, really drove home the settlement that's at hand and how the abatement dollars go down and how much money the victims are getting. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Sackler, by the time they entered bankruptcy, Purdue and the Sacklers were pretty much just kind of writing the checks. The bankruptcy system created this dynamic where victims had to fight other creditors. And when I say other creditors, I mean the hospitals, the pharmacies, the state attorneys general, the federal government to make claim that we had been harmed more than them. And ultimately, as I think is memorialized in the, the, the plan of confirmation, we lost that battle. Yeah. So, so give us a sense of how you made the decision to write the book. Was there a moment when you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. I got to do this. And uh, certainly we know there were confidentiality orders in place with this settlement. Um, are you afraid that you've broken uh, any of those um, confidential conf confidentiality agreements? Having a tough time with that word today. Or was anyone actively trying to keep you from telling the story? I just want to know like, what those agreements wedded you to. And, and once you made the decision, like, what was that like? Was it scary? Were you intimidated? Was what was the weird place of that? Yeah. I, I mean, writing the book was one of the more terrifying experiences of my life. I'll also say like when I made the decision to write it, like I'm not making anything from this. All the profits from the book are going to a nonprofit organization in uh, Marlboro, Massachusetts, team sharing that works with families uh, who've lost loved ones to overdoses. It just didn't feel like the right project, you know, to, to take a gain from, I really wanted to just write this to get the story out um, and made that decision, uh, you know, last spring. I'll tell you though, like the book that I set out to write is not the book that I ended up completing. Right. So if you read the book, it takes you, I, I wrote it in real time. So I set out to actually write the original title of the book was sacked. Right. I was originally writing a story which predates the bankruptcy right? That was going to be about the Sackler family, right? From an activist advocate perspective, the Sackler family in Purdue. Um, it wasn't going to be this story about what happened in the bankruptcy. And I was about a third of the way through the book last spring when the narrative completely changed. Um, the lawyers actually in the case, and I don't know if they'll cop to this these days, but knew that I was writing a book like counsel for the unsecured creditors committee was aware that I was writing a book. Now they didn't know that it eventually turned to be a full kind of shine the light on the bankruptcy process. Um, but that shifted for me um, right around February, March of 2020 uh, around uh, the um, emergency relief fund. Right. Um, and what was that? So was that? at the beginning, right at the beginning of the case, I, thought it was a crime in itself as I started to see the bills and the invoices that were coming in that I actually had to sign, right? Because I was the co-chair of the committee in, you know, 50 million, 60 million, you know, dollars just keep raking up that are only going to lawyers and consultants in the case. And mm -hmm. I thought it was a crime that money wasn't making its way to the ground. It wasn't going to, uh, it wasn't going to get to communities in need. 
It wasn't going to go to help, you know, serve uh, uh, community-based supports that were fighting the overdose crisis, folks who were oftentimes left out of funding cycles through the states. And we proposed this emergency relief fund, $200 million, which would have been the most the, the largest investment in American history. I mean, we, we have been you know, struggling for dollars for a long time uh, in harm reduction, right? Syringe exchange services, uh, things like that, fentanyl test strips, um, services for family, uh, family members who lost loved ones to overdoses, peer services and coaching, recovery support services for recovery community organizations. Would have been so helpful during the pandemic as overdoses, right. as you know, have just continued to go up. Right. Absolutely. Numbers were skyrocketing. So we thought, get this money on the ground. I thought it was a done deal. I was like, this makes so much sense. Nobody's going to fight this. Like, get money on the ground, 200 million of what will eventually be a $10 billion settlement. Get it to nonprofit organizations, you know, uh, non governmental uh, organizations that, that, that are falling through the gaps and having to close their doors right now, actually, as a result of the pandemic. And we proposed this and fought over it for about, you know, five months and eventually got killed. Didn't get killed by the Sacklers, didn't get killed by Purdue. It got killed by state attorneys general in unison. There's, as you know, famously a split between uh, mostly the Republicans and the Democrats up until recent. Um, But when it came to money, they were all in lockstep. State attorneys general felt that if the dollars weren't going through their states and if they weren't making the decisions on how that money was going to be spent, that nobody deserved any. And it was at that moment that I was like, oh my gosh, like this isn't just everybody versus Purdue. This is victims and people who are like struggling to stay afloat right now versus the whole system. Was it like about, was that about power or? It was about power. Um, I think a lot of it had to do with politics too. Because state attorneys general had put themselves so in the forefront and the spotlight of this case that claiming money that they recovered was a win and made for good headlines. And possible gubernatorial elections down the road. That's right. Every, you know, friend of mine says, you know, famously, he says, you know, every attorney general wakes up in the morning and looks in the mirror and sees a governor. And we're seeing that now. Some of the attorneys general who you know, we're some of the most outspoken in this case are going to be running for governor. It's no secret anymore. So the more headlines that they could generate around this issue, the better for them. But whose expense was that at, right? It was at the expense of, you know, organizations doing a lot of good who don't get state funding. And most organizations that do a lot of good don't get state funding. It's very hard to get into those funding cycles. It was at the expense of victims, who without their claims, the 130,000 victims in this case, none of the state claims would even exist. You know, so it, it was then that I said this, the narrative of this book has now shifted. And I literally wrote it in real time, like, you know, every day as things were happening, um, I was writing. Now you ask about confidentiality. They threw us uh, a ton of confidentiality orders in the beginning, Um that I didn't really understand, honestly. Like I understood I couldn't talk about the case when it was going on. I couldn't do anything, you know, if I was fighting on behalf of victim creditors that would disrupt possibly a victim settlement at the end. And I respected that very much. Um, but I had always intended to talk about this uh, as soon as it as soon as it was over or as soon as I left the committee. Um, I will tell you up until now, you know, the noise has been a little bit quiet. Um, I'm almost certain that there's probably lawyers from Purdue who are watching this right now live, uh, as well as, so, hey, Davis Polk and Aiken Gump and everybody who's joining you, you get a shout out, just like I'm going to say, hi, mom. Uh, I'm positive that they're on right now watching this. Um, I did get a letter um, from actually my former committee counsel at Aiken Gump uh, threatening that if I uh, said anything in the book or said anything in the media that could undo um, the settlement that I could be uh, liable in potentially billions of dollars. And the case they made is that no longer would the settlement be the responsibility of Purdue, but that I personally could be responsible to the mm. entire claimant body, which is probably one of the most absurd things I've ever received in my entire life. Disgusting. 
You talk about a shift in perception in the book and a lot of people just learning about the case from the news, see the company and the family that ran it as the sole villains in, in the story. Um, what was the moment when you realized that this was way bigger than just taking on the Sacklers and Purdue, which which personally I think you really explain well in, in a way that helped me understand it. But when was that and and, and what happened? Right. So, you know, I had worked, um, you know, a few months before I entered the bankruptcy case, I was out front in Boston courthouse, you know, um, with a megaphone with Nan Golden and, you know, a lot of our, our mutual friends and Cheryl and others, you know, calling for accountability on behalf of the state of Massachusetts. Uh, in their original lawsuit. And I give a lot of credit to the state of Massachusetts for getting us to where we're at. But what I didn't realize was the more, the deeper that I got into the case and coming out of that emergency relief fund battle and then getting into the mediation on who gets what, where's the money going to go? I had to start recognizing that state attorneys general, as great as they are in front of a microphone, their client is the state. Their client is that state treasury. Their job as the chief attorney for that state is to recover as much money as possible for that state treasury. It wasn't to recover money for, you know, the loss of two of Cheryl's sons to overdoses or other family members. And their job was to fight for dollars um, to prevent future harm that would be going through their states and nowhere else. And there, it was just this real aha moment to me that we were not necessarily on the same side. Everything following that emergency relief debacle, that, that whole debacle just kind of set the tone for the rest of the case. You know, uh, when you think about the way the settlement has been structured, 92.5% of the money is going to corporations and governments, Right. Like we hear about all the headlines, but ninety two and a half percent of it's going to corporations and governments. And there's a lot of reasons why. And I write about it in the book. And only seven and a half percent of it is going to family members or people who, you know, uh, suffered from severe substance use disorder or lost their loved ones. An average of five thousand dollars per family. I mean, it's a paltry sum. That's criminal. Couldn't even pay the funeral. Couldn't even pay the funeral. Or in my case, like to, to give people who are watching a sense of the cost. Like the economic damage, like we hear these numbers of the trillions of dollars of economic damage of the opioid or overdose crisis to communities. But what about the economic damage to families, right? Like we understand that, yes, you know, crim increased criminal justice costs, social costs, right? Costs to these hospitals and insurance companies. Great. But my mom who's watching, I mean, she could pull out, she has a file still, you know, seven years later, eight years later. Of all the bills, unpaid bills for so long to treatment, that total near at cash value, uh, half a million dollars. Easy. Half a million dollars, right? What about those costs, right? Like nobody takes that into account. The states didn't care. They didn't care. Like the bar for individuals proving harm in this case was set so high, so high, yet states were able to just walk in and make their claim based on all costs associated with the opioid overdose crisis. Like we victims actually had to prove Purdue is the causation of the harm. Hmm. And I know we'll get to um, solutions later, but, but real quick, could I add in a question? Like what mechanism in there is going to make sure that the money gets to the, um, the kinds of help for, for the what 2.6 million Americans that are still suffering from opioid use disorder and somehow, you know, reverse this almost 90% treatment gap. That is yeah. only 10% of people in our country with OUD actually have had access to treatment in the last year. How do we get, is there anything that's coming out of this that's really going to address that? I mean, sadly, you know, first, I know we're talking, you know, in Purdue, a settlement that could be between nine to $10 billion, but let's also look at you know, the time that it's spread over, right? It's going to be about a nine year uh, span until that money's completely paid off. And the multi-district litigation, you're looking even longer than that. And then divide it by 50 states. It's really, 
really in the scheme of things, not that much money um, to, to really do what we need to do to combat the overdose crisis. There's estimates that say we need closer to 20 to $30 billion a year, right? Now, back to your question about what mechanism protects to make sure that money goes to the right place, that right place, and we don't end up in another big tobacco 2.0. I've actually said, and I'll stand by this today, and Beth, you and I can jump on Zoom or maybe do it in person in, in 10 years, but I think that you know the, the, the opioid litigation will go down in history as one of the, the, the most epic, colossal public health failures ever, ever. Mm-hmm. Um, only about half the states have passed legislation uh, that will protect those dollars to be spent for prevention, treatment, recovery, but it's up to each individual state to define what that looks like, right? And we know so, so many, so much of the money previously has gone right into abstinence-only models, which largely don't right. work for opioid use disorder, right. not to harm reduction. Not to harm reduction, but also, like, I, I've seen the abatement plan coming out of Purdue. Like, it's just very broad strokes. It says, you know, you can spend dollars on this, but it doesn't say how many dollars. And in every single plan, every single version that I saw, criminal justice is a big part of it, right? So what does that mean, right? Are we going to be looking at more laws that lock people up and throw them in asylums? Like, we just don't know. We don't know. But the best the best tool we have, uh, which is why I do the work that I do, and one of the reasons I wrote this book, uh, is accountability. It's advocacy. It's activism. It's really, you know, examination of where these dollars are going and people on the ground really holding public policymakers' feet to the floor. You know, it was embarrassing uh, in, 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 during the bankruptcy. I, we had around the emergency relief fund and talks about abatement sitting in a room with, you know, 40 different representatives of 48 different states and the United States Department of Health and Human Services and the Southern District of New York, you know, talking about uh, how we should spend dollars. And I'm there citing chapter and verse from the United States Surgeon General's report and federal data. And I write about this probably for the big chunk of the middle part of the book. And they're all telling me they disagree with their own data. Like they, they, they were saying, you know, we appreciate you citing this data and how these dollars should be spent. But sorry, Mr. Hampton, we just don't agree with you on this. We don't think these dollars should be going out this way unless, you know, you know, the state of Florida has a bigger say or controls the board of directors of how the dollars get spent. Like it, it was very much a power play. And you wouldn't see this happen in other kind of mass torts. I think you wouldn't see this happen uh, in other bankruptcies. This was a very unique bankruptcy. You also have to realize we're dealing with addiction. They saw me as, you know, an addict, right? A lot of them hated the fact that I was even there, you know, kind of schooling them on the public health side of this. And, you know, you could see the systemic bias and the discrimination and the prejudice, you know, just shine through in every decision they made against people in recovery, family members, people who use drugs. It, it, it shows how far we have to come until they actually really give, give us a meaningful uh, seat and really listen to us. That's right. Stigma. I mean, it's almost a cliche now to say, to talk about stigma, but it really, it's so true. And what I've realized, you know, after 10 years of reporting on this myself is that, you know, there were things I didn't understand either, but I didn't realize I was being stigmatizing in my views. And so you really, that's why books like this are so important because you, you can, you can really have this opportunity to educate folks um, but the difference be- with you too, Beth, though, and I'll just, because this is like over time as we've developed this relationship is that you've really listened to our community and you've spent time with them, right? And and you've and you acknowledge that, right? And you've changed how you write about it, right? And you changed how you talk about it. And, and that stuff matters. But policymakers... Listen, they had all of the knowledge, they had all of the lawyers, they had all of the money, they knew exactly what they were going to do, you know, which was just edge us out every single step of the way. Mm. There's a moment in the book when you sat down face to face with David Sackler, uh, the son of Richard Sackler, who was president of the company and, you know, behind Uh, the launch of OxyContin. To date, this is the only known meeting between a victim, um, adversarial activist against the family and a member of the Sackler family. What was that like? And how did you get that meeting? 
Yeah. Um, it was almost an obsession for me. Um, you know, shortly after the, after the, the emergency relief fund, um, issue. So I originally actually requested and demanded a meeting with Richard Sackler, um, because there was all of this communication going on around how much money was the Sackler family going to put in to this settlement and where was it going to go? Right. In my view, and I still share this view was that three and the original number is $3 billion was they needed to go way above $3 billion. If we were going to be able to compensate for the, you know, get anywhere near compensating for harm uh, to so many victims. Right. I had the view of it should be full Sackler wealth. Meaning if the Sacklers are worth $10 billion, we want $10 billion. Right. If you're going to walk away because this whole uh, conversation around the third party releases, meaning the Sacklers would get civil immunity moving forward. Like I know it's in the news a lot, but you have to remember, we've known about that since before the bankruptcy even started. The Sacklers had a term sheet that they negotiated with the majority of state attorneys general before going into bankruptcy saying, we're going to get a release. It's just depending on how much money are we going to pay? Um, so I wanted to sit face to face with him. I thought uh, meeting with Richard would have some sort of like catharsis maybe attached to it. And maybe if he talked to a victim, heard my story, heard Kara's story, because Kara joined the meeting as well, met Kara's son who, you know, is autistic and was born with NAS. Um, but there might be a moment there where they'd say, you know what, I am sorry. And like, here's full wealth, pie, pie in the sky. Absolutely. Well, the lawyers came back and said, there is no way that we're putting you in a room with Richard Sackler. You, you two will kill each other. And they offered up Jonathan Sackler. They said, but the next is, is you can meet with Jonathan. And as you know, Jonathan was sick with cancer. We didn't know at the time. And he died before the meeting. And eventually I ended up with David. And by this time, the pandemic had been in full swing, shut down orders across the country. Um, and we had to do it by Zoom. And if you ever want to know what um, sitting across you know, a table from like pure evil looks like, um, get a meeting with David Sackler. I mean, he was privileged. Um, I think, I believe still to this day, and I know you and I have had this conversation and it sounds crazy, but I believe he believes that he doesn't think he's done anything wrong. You know, um, we disagreed on several points. The meeting got quite heated. Um, and then we agreed on one thing, which was that whatever the Sackler family puts in, it should go to victims. Um, but he made very clear that that wasn't his call, that that would be up to uh, the states. And um, he essentially cried broke to me, um, saying, we don't have more than $3 billion. The family's not going to put more than $3 billion in, um, that they would rather fight this out in court than contribute more money to the bankruptcy, and that they were convinced that if they had to go to court and have an actual trial, that they would win. To close the loop on that, though, the more I reviewed in the case, the more evidence I saw, the more documents that I saw, the more sealed depositions that I read, they actually may have a point because <laughs> they, the, the, we're talking post-2007 at this point because they, you know, they, they couldn't be sued for anything pre-2007. And the states were kind of empowered as watchdogs after the 2007 consent judgment and dropped the ball. So I put the blame as much at states and municipalities and the government uh, for not holding the Sacklers' feet to the fire when they had access to what they had access to and still allowed them to operate the way they did. And, I, you know, there, there's, there's a part of the Sacklers that really are kind of gunning for a fight. And they're like, fight me. And it may, it may explain why you know, not one of the 50 or even the Department of Justice themselves has indicted them or has brought a criminal charge. None of them have sat before a grand jury. Hmm. As a follow-up, you, you do write about uh, sitting face-to-face -face with Richard uh, during his depositions. Um, and I'm just wondering, was there anything cathartic about having that front row seat? Um, was there an apology offered from the family do you think there'll be any chance of getting a criminal indictment against any member of the Sack Sackler family moving forward? And, and if not, why? Yeah. Um, the meeting, um, best way to describe it is sitting 
you know, in a room with someone and you were throwing every piece of evidence at them that is known to man, I think they could have literally, you know, uh, drawn a straight line between like Richard Sackler and like the death of every single 130,000 victims who filed claims. Um, And it didn't make a difference because he knew going into this that the outcome was already set in stone. Like he knew no matter what, he wasn't going to face, you know, any jail time. The worst thing that's going to happen to him is he may have to write a little bit of a larger check. Um, He joked, you know, he cracked jokes uh, here and there during the deposition. He smirked, he smiled, he laughed. You know, he called certain attorneys that, that were questioning him old friends. Um, He was laid back in his chair. Um, I I said it the other night, like, and I, and I write about in the book, it's like the best, description is like a guy who just zero F's given. He didn't care. Um, and it was frustrating to uh, to like Cheryl and myself and others who are watching this because it was one of the most powerless feelings you could ever have. And, and, and I would jump off those calls and be like, but okay, he's getting civil immunity. There's still like, he can still be charged criminally. The family can be charged criminally. And it would be explained to me that that's not going to happen. Um, I know there's a lot of like hoopla by some of these state AGs going around talking about how the settlement doesn't include uh, a criminal release and they could still be criminally charged. Um, but I would challenge anyone who, you know, likes research and, and to kind of look at these things to go find uh, a state where uh, there's been a major uh, civil settlement with a corporation or individual and where that state has turned right around. Uh, and and charge them criminally. It was just a tacit wink, wink, nod, nod um, that if, you know, they received the civil release, um, they wouldn't be charged criminally. And I don't think there's any, I think the evidence is just clear or else it would have been done. And is part of it too, that once the money starts coming down, like, I think it's called equitable mootness. Equitable mootness, yeah. This, because the states want that money and they want to claim yeah. that political victory. They want to claim that political victory. I mean, like it is, look, I'm a Democrat, you know, I'm a, I'm a liberal Democrat. I, I, I you know, uh, I'm an alumnus of a, of a Democratic administration at one point before, uh, you know, becoming addicted. Um, but watching certain state attorneys general, even some of the ones right now who are in the peel, talk about the crimes of the Sackler family and Purdue and, um, they actually have, are the only ones that have the power to press these charges. And here we are years later and we haven't seen one. It just doesn't pass the smell test for me. Mm. Uh, we're starting to get some questions. I think I'll ask one more and then I'll, I'll go to them. Um, and many of the government and state representatives say the money from the settlement will be used to abate the overdose crisis. We've seen them all on TV claiming, you know, I got it across the finish line, uh, that it will go toward prevention, treatment and recovery resources, all things I know you care deeply about what, what's not right about that to you, to you. Yeah. So there's, there's nothing wrong with it. Right. Um, but preventing future harm is way different than compensating for past harm. And this is important because the multi-district, I mean, there's a lot of news right now about what's going on in Polster's courtroom. You have to remember the pharma companies, the, 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 the pharmacies, the big pharma companies, they're all settling. They're going to, if they haven't settled yet, they're going to settle. There's going to be a settlement there. But the only plaintiffs in those cases are government you know, plaintiffs, right? It's cities, it's municipalities, it's states. They're going to take 100% of the money. And those companies are going to get a release similar to what's happening in Purdue uh, so they can't be sued in the future. So individuals who are harmed by these pharmaceutical companies won't be able to sue those specific companies, right, for, for what's happened in the past. So now we'll skate over to Purdue for a second. Purdue Pharma, the bankruptcy, is the only mechanism that exists where individuals as a collective power have a claim against the company to get any sort of compensation from them, right? And sadly, here in the United States, and particularly in this case, justice means a paycheck, right? The only way individuals can 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 get any dollars is out of the Purdue Pharma um, bankruptcy. All of the things the states say they want to do 
look, they're entitled. Absolutely. They've been harmed to a piece of the settlement, but they're not entitled to all of it. They're not even, in my opinion, they're not entitled to even a majority of it because all those services I pay taxes for as an American taxpayer, you pay taxes for people who are listening or paying pay taxes for, they should be providing those services to us anyway. Right. But they shouldn't be saying, you know, screw the victims, right? Like we're not going to pay them. We're not going to, we're not going to compensate them for the death, destruction and, and everything that's happened to them because we want to fix the future problem. Any other mass tort bankruptcy, and I've learned more about bankruptcy than I care to, to know and, and don't ever want to like, after this is over, hear about it anymore. Um, but mm-hmm. any other mass tort bankruptcy, that would never happen, right? So I give this example and then I'll, I'll we can move to questions. And I use the state of Massachusetts and you and I have talked about this example and people are like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So there's a chemical company in Boston, Massachusetts, that's knowingly poisoning the water for benefit. And all of a sudden, 130,000 Bostonians lose their lives because this company has been poisoning the water. Attorney General of Massachusetts comes in and says, hey, we're going to sue this company because of what they did. It's wrong, right? We're going we're gonna, to you know, sue them for you know, $10 billion or whatever. And the company doesn't have enough money in the bank to cover the liability. They file for Chapter 11. Um, they go into bankruptcy court. Those 130,000 people or so in the, Boston, Massachusetts, file a bankruptcy claim because they lost a loved one from this water that's been poisoned, right? Do you think that the state of Massachusetts in that case would stand up and say in open court, but we believe that the state should recover 92.5% of that money because we want to build a better water system for the future, not for but the victims that lost their, their lives, you know, it yeah you know we, they they or should get or still health struggling issues. with health issues like you know they'll be okay because we're gonna we're gonna fix it for the future. I mean that's not what happened in the Boston Marathon case. I mean there's 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 bankruptcy cases where there's been uh, faulty seatbelts right where people have you know been harmed from these seatbelts in these car companies and they received a bruise as a result of the seatbelt and they're getting more money than what. A mother will get if she lost her son or daughter to Oxycontin, right? It goes right back to that stigma, bias, discrimination. They see us as different. They see us as not worthy. I was told during the bankruptcy by, and I write about it in Unsettled, the deputy AG, who said they don't believe we have, we, we should get anything. The victims should get anything because we did this to ourselves and the states were the ones providing the services. When the you did it to off, yourself. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Mm. Speaking of families, um, one uh, woman who's on here, uh, I, it might be a, one parent who's on here says uh, they lost their son at age 27. A billion dollars couldn't bring him back. And of course, we know so many people and, 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 and they it's almost an insult, this average five thousand um, dollar a claim. Uh, but the question here is relative to the settlement cost, has the cost for the loss of life ever been put in financial terms? Yes. Um, and I think that, so there was a, two mediators in the case, uh, you know, Lane Phillips and Ken Feinberg, Ken Feinberg being the same one who mediated the, the 9-11 fund. And, um, there had to be term sheets that were put together between the different creditor groups that were mediated under those two, you know, chief kind of negotiators uh, of what, you know, what, the, what is the cost of a human life? And I think that was with, with the dollars that, that were presented, which at this time was $750 million before attorney's fees, by the way. Um, so it'll probably be closer to 500 million split between 130,000 victims. But the, 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 the number they landed on was about $48,000 um, for, for death, right? Um, and then it scaled down to $3,500. But hitting that $48,000 bar, it's like, you know, it's like hitting a, a jack, a, a, a sick jackpot in a sense, because the, the harm that you have to prove to get to that $48,000 is extraordinary, right? Not only can, do you need to go to go through a, um, a process with a claims administrator, which has yet to start, right, for people who have claims, but you have to show 
prescriptions <laughs> that 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 say that you were you know prescribed Purdue, you've got to then show records of like treatment and hospital records and um, really draw this straight line that Purdue caused that harm. Now that sounds like your average listener, reader, or viewer. Okay, well that makes sense. Except for many people don't have those records, and many states or pharmacies, you know, given the amount of time that's passed, don't have the records either. Like I'm the perfect example, right? Like I had Purdue prescriptions, I had OxyContin prescriptions, but I was in the state of Florida. State of Florida laws only require that pharmacy records be maintained for five years. So good luck going back and finding 10, you know, 12 year records from 12 years ago. And a lot of families, particularly when there was an overdose death, one of the things that I, that I experienced was it was really reliving extraordinary trauma for them, right? Mm -hmm. Like these lawyers and these plaintiff lawyers were really putting them through the, through the ringer on having to go and kind of just reinvestigate their child's death. And we saw many family members um, kind of give up in the process, right? Um, and and just say, you know, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to me. Um, like re-traumatizing so, for them, and yeah. you know, just all while though. And I, I I've got to point back out though again, like that victim versus state dynamic. Um, because of the outsized role of government creditors in this case, the federal government and state governments they were allowed to essentially show up and file their claim without having to prove that those trillions of dollars, which was their original claim, a claim amount um, came as a direct result of Purdue, just using the theory, right? They use this theory that all overdose deaths in one way or another were derived from Purdue because they saw Purdue as the taproot. Now I'm not disagreeing with that, but they didn't have to show the same proof that individuals did, right? Like right. many people, like, like we should have been at least held to the same standard as our own government. Right, exactly. Um, another question is, can anything be done at the state level in regards to the attorneys general and what they've done? Great question. Yes. And this is why I'm a big advocate and um, talk about in the book and it's called voting <laughs> um, and asking the right questions. Right. I, 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 I am a firm believer of holding these attorneys general to account, showing up, go to their town hall meetings, ask them why these dollars were driven away from victims when victims should have been front and center. Ask them what they're doing with these opioid abatement dollars. Ask them, you know, get involved in the tracking process of how these dollars are being spent. Um, and, 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 you know, don't allow them to politicize the issue. Hold them accountable. Um, if you're in a state that hasn't passed legislation to at least put some basic guardrails, and I know half the states have not yet uh, around how the dollars are being spent, then find yourselves a good state representative or an ally in the state legislature and help them write that bill. Um, reach out to me, tweet at me, email me. I'd be more than happy to work with you on this because this writing Unsettled wasn't just about getting this story out there. It was hopefully the people who read it are as outraged as I was in this process and are ready to get involved and make a difference. So this doesn't happen again, because if we don't change the system, this is going to happen again and it's just going to be worse next time. Uh, another viewer says, um, thank you for writing this book, Ryan. Um, there was media coverage about how the Sackler family didn't suffer financially at all. Was that a factor in the bankruptcy case? No. And it wanted, again, one of the more angering um, facts of the case was that uh, while their wealth, right, while, while, while their, their net wealth um, was certainly a factor in what they paid in their initial contribution, which is, you know, averaged around four, it's going to be somewhere around 4.4 to $4.5 billion. You know, they're worth about $11 billion. Uh, that's what we came to find uh, towards the end of the case. Um, this After they have paid that $4.5 billion out, which is over nine years, and it's a couple hundred million dollars a year, um, there are several models uh, that show that the Sackler family, if they don't work another day in their life, um, just based on interest rates and based on current investments that they have, will actually be richer um, than they are today. They will recover the money that they have paid out in the settlement 
and end up in the net. Um, there's some models that show that they could be worth upwards of $16 billion um, by the time the nine, nine years ends. So um, that was not taken into account. When you really, you know, I, my eyes were open because I actually looked, I wish I had the chart here. Um, happy to share with anybody if they, they reach out to me afterwards, but there's a chart that shows how their wealth goes up each year and how much they're paying each year, right? And how much they're paying each year kind of stays constant, but their wealth continues to grow. That was not a factor. And when you really look at it kind of in black and white like that, you know, Patrick, Rad, our friend Patrick Radden Keefe says it best, like that is billionaire justice. Like that is, that is how this works in the United States of America. And it is wrong. Mm. It, it, this is a great question. And I get, I get this myself is calling the opioid epidemic, a crisis of white America, a fair assessment, or is it more intricate than that? So we have more than, let's just be like dead honest, like the attention on the quote unquote opioid crisis, which is an overdose crisis. And we've had a drug crisis in this country that predates the last 10 years, um, gained a tremendous amount of attention uh, when it started impacting white communities. Um, and it was white families who were who were getting the attention from policymakers. And I think famously, most notably in the 2016 presidential election, which was really the first presidential cycle to see it ra- you know, raised to the level um, that that it that it has. Um, that being said, still in 2021, there's a massive health disparity in terms of where these dollars are going. Right. Um Black communities, communities of color do not receive the same resources that white communities do. Still today in summer of, or, or, or uh, um, September, uh, where are we? September, uh, what month is it? September, October, October, October of 20, October of 2021. Um, those communities don't receive the same resources. They don't have the same access to medication assisted treatment. They don't have the same access to recovery supports. Um, you know, you, you see, uh, you know, white communities where you can do like telehealth and like take home methadone yet in communities of color, like the only way to get methadone is to show up at five o'clock in the morning and get dosed right at some clinic, um, that can throw you out for having like a dirty urine. I mean, we're, and, and it spills over into the criminal justice system. Um, it's important that we have that discussion and, and dialogue, um, because it is still happening. And yes, that, that isn't. That is a very true assessment, 100%. And communities of color are disproportionately impacted by overdoses. So it really doesn't make much sense. Like communities of color die at a much more rapid and higher rate than white communities do. Yeah, and get incarcerated. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, uh, I, as a white, you know, I'm, I'm, as a white male, <laughs> I should have been arrested many times you know, when I was using for things that, you know, many friends of mine did who are not white. Some of them who are still serving sentences, small crimes, right? That is a direct result of my white privilege. I recognize that. Like, that is a real thing. Like, it is not colorblind when it comes to the criminal justice system today. Yeah. So right now there are several appeals to the bankruptcy plan in play and um, un- unsettled essentially ends after the majority of non-consenting states led by uh, the Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healy joined the Sackler settlement, um, essentially ensuring the confirmation of the plan that gave the Sackler family broad releases. So maybe just in the last 10 minutes, we could talk about what's going to happen next what reforms would you propose to keep this from ever happening again? Super important question. Um, it is still a live ball in the Purdue bankruptcy case right now. There are active appeals um, from the United States trustee. There's active appeals from state of Maryland, uh, state of Washington, specifically around the constitutionality of the uh, non-consensual third-party releases. It's very complicated, too. The problem, the issue is um, the $750 million that's been carved out for victims. If those appeals go through, and I asked the United States trustee this as four days ago, I had a conversation with them about it. I asked, what happens to the victim's money if the appeals are successful? And the answer was, we don't know. 
um, there is a very real shot. And I wrote about it in time magazine today that that 750 million goes from, you know, that number to zero overnight and government creditors take all the dollars. Um, so there, it's a complicated situation. Now, should there be some sort of plan or scenario where that money could be protected? Um, and we go after the constitutionality and the problems with the non-consensual third-party releases? I would hope so, but nobody has been able to explain that to me. Uh, that makes much sense. And I think I kind of understand, you know, more than most of the mechanics of, 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 of this process. Um, it also brings into question, like, what, what happens if it is appealed? Like, what happens to the Sacklers, right? And I, I, I've played this down the court as much as I can. So let's say the appeal is successful. People can go back to suing the Sacklers. Sacklers now have, you know, billions of dollars of liability against them. What's going to happen? They're going to file for bankruptcy, right? We're going to be back into square one. It doesn't change the fact that they're not going to ever, you know, be locked up. They're never going to face a criminal trial, right? Um, and it also means that probably government will outsize victims once again in a Sackler bankruptcy, right? And we'll probably get way less, if anything at all. So it's really um, very political um, and a lot of unknowns. So I've really shifted my focus uh, coming out of out of out of un, uh, launching unsettled is how do we reform the bankruptcy process? I, if you would have told me two years ago that walking out of this out of this uh, experience that like one of my main objectives for the next you know year or two is going to be to reform the bankruptcy laws in the United States, I'd be like, get the hell, no way! Like I don't know anything about bankruptcy, but what I've learned is that victims come last in bankruptcies right now of, of this scale, that this case impacts not just, you know, the victims of Purdue, but the victims of Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein, the victims in the Boy Scout case, the victims of future cases similar to this. Um, there, there is legislation that's on the table right now around non-consensual third-party releases. There is legislation uh, addressing bankruptcy reform. Uh, Senator Warren, Senator Blumenthal, um, Senator Durbin, uh, Representative Maloney. I mean, they all have kind of the, the the outlines of what something could look like. Sadly, none of that legislation addresses for me, you know, the main issue at hand, which is centering victims, making sure they don't have to get in line behind the government and big corporations, billion dollar corporations to collect when they've been harmed more than all of them. Like I, I it blows my mind that none of the legislation addresses the direct harm to in actual human beings. It addresses pretty much everything else, but not that. So I believe that, you know, hopefully coming out of this, we're going to get in front of Congress. We're going to talk about this experience. We're going to make sure that victims aren't forgotten, um, that victims do come first, um, and hopefully prevent this from happening again and really exposing the truth here. You know, I, I, I'll close on this and just say this bankruptcy, Purdue Pharma, has been touted as the most transparent process by Marshall Huebner, who I'm sure is watching right now, the chief lawyer for Purdue, uh, Davis Polk, is the most transparent process bankruptcy in the history of the world. He would say in the history of the world. And then you'd hear, you know, Attorney General Healy, uh, Attorney General, General James of New York, get out in front of the microphone and say, you know what? We didn't get as much money as we wanted. Victims didn't get the best settlement. But the best thing that's going to come out of this bankruptcy is information, right? It's going to be a ton of information, 30 million documents, all the depositions. The whole American public is going to know what happened here, right? Well, I'm telling what is today again? It's October 6th. That information has yet to drop. And the second I decided I was going to write this book and start telling my truth of what really happened in this bankruptcy, I'm hit with a letter saying either you shut up or we're going to sue you for billions of dollars. Something is not right here. Absolutely. Um, just one last question. Now that your book is out, what's next for you and your advocacy? I'm, I've never been more grateful to be done with this case. I am looking forward. Um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done here in my hometown, Las Vegas. People are dying. Friends of mine need help. Um, there are, you know, centers closing down left and right. We have power struggles within our own state around how dollars are going to be spent. 
Um, I, I'm looking forward to, you know, at least in the foreseeable future, um, really spending time here close to home um, because the, you know, it, it, um, it's been painful in the sense to, that I got so caught up in this bankruptcy for two years and um, people close to me, you know, were hurting. And um, I thought that we were going to make a difference in this and um, we lost a lot of people this year. And so I want to, I want to get to back to basics where it really matters, you know? Oh, and just, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in and just most of my thanks to you, Ryan, for, for getting in there and just so um, being so brave about telling this and taking on this, you know, massive topic um, when you're also struggling with, with losing so, so many members of your community at the same time. It's, and, the, and then just a reminder again that the proceeds from Unsettled are going to go to fund treatment and prevention and uh, nonprofit groups, which we know the ones out there meeting people where they are, are really saving lives and um, really turning, trying to turn back the stigma that prevents people from getting the care. And I, I know this book will help uh, with that issue and hopefully we'll begin to, um, you know, start to close that treatment gap, which is just unconscionable. Um, but thanks again. Appreciate everybody for tuning in. Thanks to the Commonwealth Club of California. And um, I hope you have a great book tour. Thank you, Beth. And hopefully next time I see you, it'll be in person. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think we've ever been in person. We haven't. We, it's like you, we, you live in a box on my desktop, you know. <laughs> and good luck. Good luck with Hulu and, and Dope Sick. Thanks so much. Really, really excited about it. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.